Welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Hmm. Word. Here we are. We're back. We are back. The regular Thursday upload. That's right. I feel like we just recorded. I know. I feel the same way. It's interesting, because I feel like usually if we have a full week between episodes... It's kind of like, oh man, it's been a minute. But for whatever reason, this week just kind of flew by. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, we're recording again. It was like are. so packed with activities that it's, it's like, true. it just flew by. It really it just did. went by way faster than yeah. we realized. We were busy. We have a Patreon coming on Monday. So it's really going to feel like Goodness. boom, boom, boom. Yeah. yeah. Well, It's time to ask the most important question of the day. You okay? I'm okay. I'm, I just, for just a moment there, everything kind of went black. And the rest of my schedule for the rest of the week went through my brain. I'm like, when are we recording for Patreon? I thought I saw a little bit of joy slip from your usually sparkly eyes. And I was right. You were thinking of your schedule. I was like, oh no, everything. Anyway, everybody's wondering, what are you drinking? Well, I am... Oh, I'm a realist. Let's just start with that. Okay. So ideally, I would not care about lattes, nor would I care about big old fountain pops from the gas station. Mm-hmm. But I like them. You just do. And I don't have one tonight. I'm trying to take like a reasonable approach to cutting back. I know that for myself, maybe it's different for other people, but for myself, if I... If I try and cut something out completely, mm-hmm. I'm going to just come back and binge it later. Right. Like hardcore. And so I do much better with like a replacement of it and then having the thing when I want the thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, those little crystal light packets, mm-hmm. there's like an off brand or a different brand of a similar thing where it's like the powdered drink that you mix into the water and it's oh, yeah. cherry limeade. Mm. It's really good. That's good. Huge fan of those. Yeah. So good. It's like. No sugar and all that. Sugar is my weakness. Mm-hmm, it really just is. I love sugar. Same sugar is just so good. It's I everything mean, it's, about it. It's perfect, honestly. I could launch into a 10-minute <laughs> monologue about why sugar is so great and why I love it. But I'm not going to do that. Thank you. What do you have? Well, tonight, this is kind of my last night before I really get gung-ho in my summer exercises. I've kind of eased in, as mm-hmm, you know, over mm-hmm. the last few weeks. Um. I really took it a little bit too easy for too long, winter into spring. And I was like, I, I got to like get into shape for all the things that I'm doing this summer. Mm-hmm. At least enough shape that I don't get winded going upstairs. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good benchmark. <laughs> yes. So tonight I'm enjoying uh, just a little bit of this wine that we have uh, that has been sitting in our fridge forever. This Moscato stuff. Mm. It's good. It's tasty. Good thinking. Yeah. I was just like, I, I might as well treat myself to something that. I don't usually have, so drinking wine. Is this the first time either of us have had wine on the show? Maybe. It might be. We almost made it 70 episodes with no wine. That's crazy. That is wild. To be fair, also, this is wine that I'm drinking out of a Yeti cup. So, <laughs> sorry, everybody. It's Midwestern wine. Yeah. Wine. I, I, we have we do have good wine glasses. We just... I. Those I are just, for fancy this, times. Yeah. I didn't want to do another dish, so... <laughs> Here I am drinking wine out of a Yeti cup. Yeah. Anyway. Brasca. Oh, Brasca. 
<laughs> All right. My love, you got a feel-good fact for us? Yeah. So the jury's out if this is a feel-good fact or a fun fact. And Ooh, so okay. feel free to weigh in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pigeons can do math. That's the whole fact. That's... I was waiting for a reaction before I continued. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I'm like, I, I, I can't tell this is a feel good or a fun fact because I don't know what the context is of it. Continue. Tell, tell us more. <laughs> According to a comparative psychologist named Damien Scarf, uh, he conducted a study at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Sorry mm-hmm. if I mispronounced that. With a group of three pigeons. So the group of three pigeons were trained for a full year on basic numerical concepts. And at the end of the year, all three pigeons aced their math tests. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So this is a feel-good fact because they aced their math test. They did it. That's that's why. I was not sure if it... You you set it up. Is it feel-good or fun? Who knows? But because they all aced it. They did it. Absolutely a feel-good fact. I feel great after knowing that. It's fascinating. You should read it. (laughs) Well, and Damien Scarf has also made the point that he believes that many other species are capable Mm. of of understanding basic math concepts uh, because previously it was only believed that primates understood Mm. math concepts apart from from humans, obviously. And so super interesting, super fascinating. And he said everything from like, the birds to honeybees and all sorts of different animals. He believes wow. he can he can prove that they can understand math. Wow. That's really cool. Which is great. And I'm really yeah. proud of all three pigeons who studied hard for a whole year yes. and then aced their test. They aced it. They did better than you or I would have done as we've, <laughs> as we've demonstrated I know. on this podcast a few <laughs> different times. <laughs> Remember that time we were trying to figure out how many ounces of water you were drinking and you were off by I like was, 94. Yeah. Was four. Way off. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the pigeons have outsmarted us yet again. Yet again. <laughs> All right, my love. Now that you've brought us up into the stratosphere of feel goodiness, why don't feel you goodery. go ahead and feel, feel goodery. Yeah. That's even better. Uh, why don't you go ahead and share with us? this week's story and bring us crashing back down to earth. Okay. So we're back this week with another true crime story on June 23rd, 1965, two officers in Houston were dispatched to one eight one five Driscoll street to conduct a wellness check for two elderly residents in the home. Their nephew had tried and failed to contact them for several days and was concerned due to their age. After the officers attempted to make contact from the main points of entry into the home with no success, they made their way inside. When they looked around, it didn't seem like there were many things out of place, apart from a stack of flower pots that had been blocking the front door to the home, as well as a bunch of food left out on the table. It wasn't like meals or a snack that someone just hadn't cleaned up yet. It was like the condiments and refrigerated items, Mm. almost as if someone had left the house in a hurry in the middle of deep cleaning the fridge. Hmm. This prompted one officer to open the fridge. Inside were stacks and stacks of meat, likely meat from a whole hog that may have been purchased from like a local farmer who they paid to process a whole animal, which is a pretty common practice, like even still. And I mean, Texas also. Yeah, it's a you know, you can buy a whole cow, you can buy Mm -hmm. a whole pig. That's a pretty it's a pretty normal thing. Yeah. So. The fridge was completely packed with meat, like I said, and it was just on the verge of starting to smell, possibly because it wasn't being stored in any sort of packaging. Mm. One of the officers recalled saying something or thinking something along the lines of, it's a shame that all this meat's going to go to waste. Mm. 
But when one of the officers looked down at the opaque vegetable drawer, he realized that he wasn't looking at a fridge full of hog meat. From inside the vegetable drawer, the officer was being stared at from two vacant, dead eyes. Mm. When he opened the drawer, he made a horrifying discovery of two severed human heads, and the meat in the fridge was what was left of the bodies. This is the story of the infamous and gruesome Icebox murders. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. My So right out of the gate, my gut goes... Uh, it, if this is the infamous, and I, obviously I never know anything about even the most popular stories. If this is the infamous story of the Xbox killer, is this the first time that someone has ever been found in an icebox? No, okay. unfortunately not. Okay. No. So this is not, be, it's not infamous because it's the first time it's infamous for another reason. Yeah. Okay, we're going to find I out. I should say. <laughs> okay. I should say. I feel okay. like you'll you'll catch the theme as we go. I'm sure. And you can go ahead and shout it out if you if you pick up on it. Okay. Okay. So obviously this was an extremely disturbing discovery. The elderly couple identified as 81-year-old Fred Rogers and 79-year-old Edwina Rogers were living in their home with their adult son at the time of their deaths. When Chief Officer Charles Bullock and a second officer, who I saw referred to as Officer Barda, were dispatched for the welfare check, they expected that it would be a pretty routine call. But with the dismembered bodies in the fridge, this was anything but routine. Within 10 minutes of the discovery, around 9 p.m., Bullock had called in for the homicide division to send a team over to 1815 Driscoll Street, and clusters of investigators quickly arrived on scene. Hmm. The smell of bleach was strong in the air, but apart from a few fingerprints, all belonging to residents of the home, and a small amount of blood in two areas of the home, there was virtually no other blood evidence anywhere at the crime scene. Hmm. And that includes on the bodies. Mm. It was noted that the tile flooring in the kitchen was covered with newspapers, and the investigators speculated that they were either there to prevent a fall, to clean something up, or to cover something up. But they couldn't immediately be sure about that one way or the other. But from the minute that the homicide team was on scene, all eyes were on the 1950s cold spot refrigerator. Hmm. The dismembered bodies were relatively bloodless, meaning that the bodies had both been drained of their blood post-mortem. It was also immediately evident that there were some signs of a personal killing. It's obvious that the dismemberment was a brutal thing to see, Mm -hmm. but it was Fred's body that sent a shiver down the spines of investigators. His eyes had been removed from his skull and his penis had been removed from his body and then mutilated. Oh. While forensics were limited, like at the time of this story, the, the forensics hasn't, Mm -hmm. hasn't been extremely developed at this point. Sure. There were, autopsies that were able to be performed on both of the bodies. The autopsies revealed that Fred had been beaten to death with a claw hammer. His eyes were removed with the claw end of that same hammer, and a very sharp instrument was used to remove his penis, Hmm. which is very gruesome. Yes. There was also evidence of being beaten with a claw hammer on Edwina's body, but that was not her cause of death. Edwina's cause of death was from a single gunshot wound to the head. She'd been shot execution style and then beaten with the hammer after she died. Oh, geez. Yeah. Very, very gruesome. Yes. Very brutal. Just random elderly couple. Yeah. Well, and those are the kinds of murders that we've learned about. It's, there's like some vendetta Mm -hmm. that leads to that. Mm -hmm. You don't just do that just because 
Like, right. Sounds like a good time. Like, right. It's very personal. It seems like those. it. It does seem like it. Hmm. And it seems like as, as we go, I think you'll pick up on this too, that when you look at the, the wounds on each of the bodies and you consider the kind of their final moments and how they were killed, mm-hmm. that it almost tells its own story in a way yeah. of, of what had happened and what kind of led up to it in a lot of people's opinions, at least. Hmm. Okay. So one particularly disturbing element was that whoever had done this had sort of haphazardly attempted to put some of the food items back into the fridge after they'd put the dismembered body parts in there. There was a jar of jelly jammed against a human arm, a jar of peanut butter resting against a human leg, and a partially eaten raw onion laying against a torso. It was noted that the cuts on the bodies were precise and clean. Anyone who could make such clean cuts would have some level of knowledge about human anatomy and basic surgical knowledge as well. The main reason that the remains in the fridge were confused for hog meat was mostly because of how clean and precise the cuts were, almost as though they'd been professionally processed, like mm. by like a butcher or yeah. or someone in that sort of right, profession. Right. A short time after the initial discovery, it was learned that the killer or killers had attempted to flush various body parts down the toilet. A crew had to come in and pull the intestines of Fred Rogers out of the sewer lines of the property, which is horrifying wow. so gross yeah i feel awful for anyone who had to do that job oh can you imagine having to see that no when that's, that's like not your profession like a suit like someone coming in and cleaning out sewers right i my when i try to like see it in my mind's eye it's just like a very odd setting it's like like watching like a like a tv show right it's like this has to be made up you know right that's it feels like out of a horror movie right it really does right the other organs had been removed from the bodies as well but it's unclear whether any of those were ever recovered Hmm. it was determined that they had been dead for three days at the time they were discovered meaning that they would have been killed on june 20th father's day of 1965 Wow. At this time, the adult son of the Rogers, 42-year-old Charles, was nowhere to be found. Though his car was in the driveway, there was no sign of him anywhere in the house, leading investigators to initially believe that he could have been a third victim. But their assumptions changed when they noticed that the small trail of blood that they had found led straight to Charles's bedroom. Hmm. In his room, they also discovered a bloody keyhole saw which is like a long, thin saw used for drywall work and to like to basically to like cut holes mm-hmm. where you kind of like yeah, yeah, the yeah. length of it is kind of used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not a constructionist. <laughs> construction worker. Constructionist. <laughs> I don't think construction workers would call themselves constructionists, but I think they should. That's that's really that's a doctor doctorate in construction is what you are. <laughs> Constructionist team at TM. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was known that there had been handymen in the home shortly before the murders. And so it had appeared that Charles had brought the saw into his room for some reason, or that someone was trying to frame Charles for the murders by planting the saw in his Mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. They also recovered a 22 semi-automatic pistol that was determined to have been the weapon used to Mm -hmm. kill Edwina on Charles's nightstand. They also believe that the killer had drained the blood from both bodies in the bathroom due to a small amount of blood being discovered there. The master bedroom had been thoroughly trashed, but it didn't appear that anything had been stolen, leading investigators to speculate that a burglary may have been staged in their bedroom. Oh, interesting. So like there were elements that it's like this feels planted here. Right. 
to confuse the investigation. Right. And then there were elements that it's just so bizarre to look at that it's hard to process, period. And like the little bits that I read about the different officers that were on scene, like immediately, Mm -hmm. there was such a diverse reaction. Like one guy, I think it was Barda actually, who took off running out of the house and was like heaving outside. And he took on like the administrative work of contacting more people to come. Yeah. And that kind of thing. Everybody handled it differently, Mm -hmm. but everybody was obviously very, very shocked. Yeah. Wow. After the crew came in and did what they could to process the crime scene, they went around the neighborhood to try and get a sense of who Fred and Edwina were in life and if anyone had seen Charles. Fred was a retired real estate agent and Edwina had worked as a sales representative. As far as neighbors knew about the couple, Fred and Edwina were relatively casual members of the community. They weren't totally reclusive, but they also weren't overly involved in the goings-on of the community either. They were sometimes seen people watching from their front porch and were friendly enough, you know, when they were greeted. But that's about all that any of the neighbors really knew about the couple. Hmm. One thing that came as a huge surprise to neighbors was when police officers asked if they'd seen Charles, as he was also a resident in the home and was still unaccounted for. Here's the thing about that that is strange. None of the neighbors knew that Charles even lived in the home, and none of them had, had like, really ever seen him there at all. Oh, So file that away is very odd. Yes. After noticing that trend in conversations with the neighbors, Charles was suspect number one. And so they put out an APB in an attempt to bring Charles in for questioning. If he wasn't directly involved with the murder of his parents, hopefully he could at least give them something that they could use to pinpoint a suspect and ensure that Fred and Edwina would receive justice for their gruesome deaths. Hmm. In the meantime, they dug further into the Rogers family background. Tragically, when Charles was a child, his only sibling, his sister Betty, was killed when the family got into a car accident. Hmm. From that point forward, Charles was raised as an only child in a quiet suburban setting. From a young age, Charles was described as somewhat socially awkward. He didn't have a ton of relational connections or friends and had suffered at the hands of relentless bullies over the course of his younger school years. When Hmm. it was time for Charles to think about his future, he successfully enrolled in two colleges. He first attended Texas A&M in 1942, but quickly transferred to the University of Houston, where he got his bachelor's degree in nuclear physics. Hmm. Charles was super smart. Not only did he earn himself a great degree at a solid school, but he did so in less than four years. Wow. He also spoke seven languages. (laughs) What? Seven. Wow. Impressive. That is incredibly impressive. Anybody who's ever tried to learn a language and to become fluent. Mm -hmm enough to communicate in that language that knows takes time. how much time, how much yeah. effort, the kind of brain power that it takes mm-hmm. to be able to comprehend yeah. just the linguistics right. of, of mm. learning a new language and the grammar and all of it. So that's very impressive to me. Yeah. That was one of the things that I think stood out to me the most about yeah. his brain. I feel like that is a, is a really great yes. demonstrator yes. of the kind of mind that he has. He also had spent some time learning engineering and tech communications. He had his ham radio license and was a member of the Civil Air Patrol, which is a club for people with an interest in aviation. It's like a membership, like Mm -hmm. members only kind Mm -hmm. of thing. When Charles graduated college, there were plenty of options for him career-wise based off of his credentials and his ability to learn just about anything that he wanted, excelling quickly at just about everything he was interested in. Yeah. 
But World War II was raging on and Charles wanted to represent his country. So he enlisted in the United States Navy as a pilot, where he learned the ins and outs of flying military planes and then eventually worked in the Office of Naval Intelligence, which is, I learned, the oldest of all intelligence agencies Oh wow! in the United States intelligence community, hmm. which is interesting. That I didn't know it started as yeah. naval intelligence. After wow. the conclusion of the war, Charles moved back to Houston with his parents and took a job as a seismologist for Shell Oil Company. A seismologist is an earth scientist who mm-hmm. studies seismic waves beneath the earth's surface. Yeah, Charles, that's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Wow. So his job was essentially to measure vibrations under the Earth's surface in order to pinpoint exactly where the company should drill to find oil. And so this is like pretty specialized. Yeah. This isn't something where you can just pull somebody off the street. Right. And they'll just figure it out. Like they relied heavily. Yes. Companies like it yeah. relied heavily on a seismologist to give them accurate information. Right. Well, because if they are wrong, they waste tons and tons of money mm-hmm. drilling in the wrong place and so, there could be safety issues yeah. and yeah so you gotta do gotta do it right That's and it's shell we're talking about here right. like they're doing all right right so yeah wow but strangely in the years leading up to the murders of his parents charles quit his job and didn't opt to take another one as far as anybody knew hmm. but that's not all Apparently, things in the Rogers home were not copacetic really at any point in Charles's life. Mm. After more conversations with friends, family, and neighbors, it was learned that the relationship between Charles and his parents was strained at best. According to allegations provided by those closest to all three of them, Fred and Edwina both suffered from alcoholism for a majority of Charles's life. When they would drink, they would become violent towards Charles, often beating and berating him. And some have even alleged that there was an element of sexual abuse in the dynamic. And from what I gathered, I don't I don't want to say any of that as though it's official. Mm -hmm. But I think that that has been an inference that people have made based on the kind of extra personal element of how Fred's remains were handled and the Mm -hmm. fact that his genitals were removed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in stories where they have that in the background and somebody goes on to become a killer, there is that kind of sexual element. So Hmm. from my understanding, that's not an official like documented report. It's an allegation. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm being clear about that. Yeah, That's fair. Wow. That's really sad though. It's very sad. As the years marched on, the abuse allegedly continued, but morphed. After doing some digging, investigators discovered that it wasn't Charles living at home with his parents, but rather that his parents were living with him. Hmm. Charles was the one who owned the home at 1815 Driscoll Street. Not only that, but it was also learned that Fred and Edwina had committed some low-level fraud when times were tough for them, and that they'd taken loans out in Charles's name when he was an adult. Loans that Charles would be forced to pay back himself. Oh, man. At the time of their death, it was also noted that neither parent had spoken face-to-face with Charles for five full years. Oh, my gosh. They hadn't seen him face-to-face, and they lived in the same home. Instead of communicating face-to-face, they would slip notes under Charles's bedroom door and would wait for him to write a response. He never came out of his room when his parents were awake, but would also be gone for long hours, giving his parents and loved ones no clues as to where he was going, especially after he'd lost his job mm-hmm. or quit his job, I suppose. Wow. Yeah. He avoided them at all costs. So it's pretty clear that the dynamic between Charles and his parents was not the healthiest, but would all of that give him enough of a motive to want to murder them, Hmm. especially so gruesomely. Right. Especially when things are just kind of going along as they are. Right. And they're, they're elderly. Yeah. 
Like why, why now? Right. Not to say mm-hmm. that there's ever a good time, but like trying to make sense of what someone who's so intelligent right. would be thinking, trying to put yourself into that right. headspace, which yeah. is a place you don't want to stay long. Right. It's not a great place to sure, visit, sure. but yeah, it really doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It's hard to even comprehend at all wanting to do that. But then when you put all of the other factors into it, you're like, that's just, you, you really have to either be um, kind of slipping into that mindset often, mm-hmm. like very often mm-hmm. to be over overtaken by it. Right. Or, and I'm sure we may or may not get into this, but like, or there's something uh, chemical happening mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. But that's potentially, or like a very sudden snap. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the mm-hmm. months after the murder, the working theory was that the icebox murders were either committed by a totally unhinged psychopath who targeted and attacked the Rogers at random. Or it was a highly personal double murder committed by the victim's own son, with the latter being far more plausible and far sure. more talked about. Yeah. Given the state of the dismembered remains and the lack of blood evidence on the scene, and considering that most of Charles's belongings were still in his room, police surmised that Charles had spent considerable time studying human anatomy and surgical techniques, and that once he'd killed his parents, drained their blood, dismembered and stored their remains, that he then did a thorough cleanup job before disappearing, still giving him a pretty decent head start on escaping before police were even aware that a crime had occurred at all. Right. So that was kind of their best Hmm. guess as to what had happened. Yeah. When the APB went unanswered and attempts to contact civil air patrol members in hopes of connecting with anyone who had seen or heard from Charles led to nothing, police went to media with the story. As you can imagine, the story blew up in the Houston area. Mm -hmm. At the time, there was really nothing like it that had taken place in Houston. (laughs) And it, it quickly did turn national as well. Police urged the public to come forward with any information regarding Charles and his whereabouts and even made a plea to Charles directly, asking him to come forward as he was likely the only material witness at best and the killer at worst. Mm -hmm. But sadly, this also led to nothing. Right. For years, nobody heard from Charles. Nobody saw him at all. And he never even returned home. In 1972, the home on 1815 Driscoll Street was placed under probate by the state. Charles didn't leave any assets in a will to anybody, and since the home had remained vacant for several years, it was sold to the state, which promptly demolished the house with everything still inside. Like furniture, appliances, everything, yeah. Hmm. Decades later, a condo complex was constructed where the house once stood. In 1975, Charles Rogers was declared dead in absentia, which basically just means that he was legally declared dead since nobody had any contact with him for 10 years. Hmm. This allowed, you know, any other property or assets belonging to Charles to be dealt with accordingly. Over the years, many people have speculated on the Icebox murders and on Charles Rogers and his potential involvement in the crimes, but it has remained unsolved for almost 60 years at this point. Even still? Even still. Oh, Wow. What we do have Hmm. are a handful of theories to go through. Ooh, we like going through theories here. We do like going through theories. (laughs) One of the more popular theories comes from authors Hugh and Martha Gardner. The couple have no formal law enforcement training, but in 1997, the two forensic accountants decided that they wanted to dig into this case for real, utilizing their skills at following paper trails to learn all that they could about the Rogers family, the investigation, and the murders themselves. (laughs) 
After nearly 5,000 hours spent studying public records, police reports, conducting interviews, and looking over all kinds of archived records, they pieced together the 2003 book, The Icebox Murders. Hmm. Wow. So it's really interesting. I haven't finished it, just full disclosure, but it's been described as fact-based fiction. So hmm. they kind of they kind of worked out what they believed happened. Yes. And they wrote okay. it as though this is this is exactly what happened. Okay. So it's fact-based fiction. I feel yeah. like that's a good it's description of it. It's like a story it. that they've kind of tied things together with some uh some artistic license maybe. A little bit. I yeah. mean, all of what they had written is based off of all of the stuff that they'd combed over. Fair. Okay. And like wow. interviews that they conducted with, I think it was something like over a hundred people wow. close to the case. Yeah. So hmm. it's a whole thing. Okay. They also pointed out several inconsistencies in the investigation and the way that Charles was portrayed in the media. While police records and old news articles portrayed Charles as a genius recluse with no adult relationships, it was learned that not only did Charles own several properties, but that he had worked in real estate. He had friendships. He also used his ham radio to uh, have conversations with people all over the world. He also used his pilot's license to travel across the world and that he had a long-term girlfriend at the time of his disappearance. Oh, interesting. So they made it like, Nobody knows this guy. Nobody's ever talked to him, really. The only people that he talks to are his parents, and it's only through notes. Hmm. He's just like this weirdo little creep who hides in his room is kind of how he was portrayed. Right. And that does make him look like the perfect killer. Mm -hmm. Like he would be the one to snap and lose it, basically, was how it was painted. Yeah. But then all this information is like, that's not how he was at all. Right. It is weird. And maybe we'll get into this. It's weird for him to have that many relationships and have nobody know where he went or have yes. nobody say anything. Correct. Okay. okay. You're tapping into the infamous Keep aspect. Keep on going. <laughs> <laughs> so the gardeners posit that it's highly likely that Charles had discovered that his parents were essentially stealing huge sums of money from him after years of abuse. Hmm. So he either snapped, murdered them and took off. Or potentially, after he found out what they were doing, he then spent years planning the murders. Mm. Fred allegedly had racked up some serious gambling debt. And if the loans they'd taken out under Charles's name were essentially used to cover that debt and or to fund an ongoing gambling problem, that that's definitely weighty enough to establish mm. a motive. Yeah. It would also make a little bit of sense about the way that Fred was killed versus the way that Edwina was killed. While Edwina's murder was quick and mostly painless, Fred had suffered greatly beneath the countless brutal blows to his body from a claw hammer. While Edwina's eyes were left in her skull, Fred's were removed along with his genitals, an interestingly personal move as well. Mm -hmm. Could Charles have been wanting to take revenge on his father and his mother was essentially collateral damage? Hmm. Possibly. Yeah. It's also noted that this case has all the markings of an organized hit. So... Mm, yes. Yes. This is kind of based off of some of the forensic evidence found on the bodies. Mm-hmm. The level of precision and the cleanup seemed like it had to have been committed by someone who had probably killed before and that there's nothing out there indicating that Charles had ever done so. Right. So. That's fair. That's really a great point. Well, even if if this was Charles there would have at least been some indication of him harming small animals. It's typically like yeah, not, not necessarily, not necessarily. Really? 
Mm-hmm. I feel like that's usually a pretty common thing if they're building up to killing somebody and then dismembering them. There's isn't usually that, there's usually like a pathology like like that would accompany that. Oh, okay. That sort of process of it escalating. Yes, that's what I mean. But in this in this case, the way that I understand the character of Charles Rogers is that it it seems more like if it was him who did it that he either snapped or became so furious mm-hmm. at the betrayal that he felt that he oh, concocted okay. and meticulously planned it almost like the way that he would need to solve a problem with any of the engineering work he did okay. or any of the 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 scientific mindset that he has about a lot of things you know was applied yeah. in a very grotesque way okay do you get what i'm saying yes yeah, so it doesn't necessarily need to be hands on learning by mm-hmm. doing the same thing to a rodent and then to a cat and then to a on and on into mm-hmm. larger animals he he can they're kind they're the assumption is because of his intelligence level mm-hmm. he doesn't need to do it like that he can basically start with his final project and call it good. Right. Okay. Sort of. Yeah. That I feel like that's fair. So either way, whether it was a hit that somebody had paid to have carried Mm. out or it was Charles himself that did it, it is believed that he had a direct hand in the murder Mm. according to these authors. Yeah. Okay. From there, they believe that Charles used some of his global connections to relocate and start his life all over again. And in fact, there's even a theory as to how he pulled this off. Based off of information that was previously withheld from the public, the day after the murders took place, a man named Anthony Pitts walked into a Houston business looking for work as a welder. It was noted that Pitts seemed nervous. Hmm. But here's the kicker. Charles's long-term girlfriend worked in that very office. It was also learned that whoever this Anthony Pitts person was, that he was given the keys to a vehicle that's believed to have been driven down to Mexico. Hmm. Could Charles's girlfriend have snuck the keys to this man so that Charles would have a getaway car? Was the man actually Charles in disguise or was it a friend who he'd paid to be an accomplice in his escape, using him to create a ruse at the front desk while Charles's girlfriend oh snuck him the keys? Wow. Once again, very movie-like. Yes. So like I said, it's believed that the car was driven to Mexico where Charles remained for a short time before he took a plane down to Honduras where he worked as a seismologist in a local mining operation. Hmm. The authors actually made contact with someone who claimed to have interacted with Charles Rogers in Honduras in the years after the Icebox murders. Wow. The Gardeners actually believe that Charles himself became a murder victim from that point on. Oh. After a wage dispute between Charles and a local mining crew, it's believed that he was bludgeoned to death with a pickaxe and then thrown into a nearby river. Oh, wow. That river happened to have had quite a few carnivores, Uh such as piranhas. So by the time the remains washed up on the shore shortly downstream, they were pretty much impossible to identify. Hmm. Okay. So that's that's a pretty firm theory then that Mm -hmm. they have is like, that was for sure him. In this setting. Yeah, like they contacted somebody who, I can't remember his name, but he ran the mining operation in Honduras. I think he was from Texas. Mm. And he, basically they'd gotten in a pretty nasty, they'd had a pretty nasty divorce. They talked to the wife of this guy. Yeah. And she was like, I'm furious at him. He cheated on me. And so I'm divorcing him. I'll tell you anything you want to know. And apparently, according to this lady, John hired Charles Rogers. Mm. So. Wow. Very crazy. That's wild. It's hearsay a little bit. 
Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if she could prove it. And like I said, I didn't read the whole book. Yeah. I feel like I need to though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like enticed to do so. It sounds like there's, there's a lot of, of, uh, wild hairs throughout Mm -hmm. this whole thing that like you can only catch if you take the time to get as meticulous as the authors. Right. Which is kind of fun, honestly. Right. To, to go down those roads, but it's also, uh, quite that's, that's why they take all the time to do it is because it's really time consuming. Right. It took them several years (laughs) to finish the book. Another hugely popular theory comes from a 1992 book called the man on the grassy knoll by John R. Craig and Philip A. Rogers. So I just want to see your face because you're really not going to see this one coming. (laughs) So in the book, they talk about Charles Rogers and his potential involvement in the JFK assassination. What? Yep. That was the face (laughs) I was hoping for and I got it. So according to the book, they believe that Charles had direct CIA connections and that he and a group of co-conspirators, some of which would be identified as Chauncey Holt and Charles Harrelson, Woody Harrelson's father. No way. Yeah. So Harrelson actually was an interesting guy. He was a hitman and a major figure in organized crime in the 20th century. And in fact, he took part in the assassination of a federal judge in 1979, the first assassination of a federal judge in the 20th century. Woody Harrelson's dad really did those things? Yeah. Wow. Apparently, according to this book, I looked it up and it was like, oh, okay, okay. This is crazy. Documented. Woody, if you are listening to this podcast, (laughs) we need you to be a guest. You need to help us. If you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable with it, I'm sure that would be a strange thing. And if you don't, just pretend like you're just telling a fake story and acting it out. I just, I want Woody Harrelson to come on this podcast and tell us all about his dad. (laughs) That's your new goal in life. Shamelessly, that's what I want. (laughs) Okay. That's crazy. Wow. (laughs) So, okay, in this book, Charles Rogers was not only a member of naval intelligence, but they believe that his job at the Shell Corporation that he began in 1956 Mm -hmm. was actually a cover for his involvement in the CIA after connecting with a fellow Civil Air Patrol member by the name of David Ferry. David Ferry was a man who had been widely considered to be the driver of the getaway car on November 22nd, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And he was also directly connected to Lee Harvey Oswald through their memberships at the New Orleans Civil Air Patrol. What? Yeah. Okay, this is getting a little bit... You, you, did, you did set me up for this, but this is a very conspiracy theory level. It is. It absolutely is. This is a crazy story. It absolutely is. But that being said, we've already established there's a lot of movie-like things about the actual thing that happened. Right. That is demonstrable and has like actual evidence and reports to it. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, uh, I will suspend my disbelief and please continue because this is crazy. There was a very famous photo taken in the immediate aftermath of the assassination called the Three Tramps. In the photo, three men are pictured being arrested, and it's believed that not only was Charles Rogers the Lee Harvey Oswald impersonator who flew to Mexico City a month before the assassination, but that he was one of the backup gunmen on the grassy knoll behind the fencing. This theory was embraced for a while and was backed up by the fact that the Houston police were sent on a wild goose chase trying to find anyone at Shell who knew Charles, and they were never able to make contact with his boss. It's also believed that Charles Rogers continued working for the CIA from South America in the years after the murders. 
There have been countless theories of CIA involvement in the JFK assassination, Mm -hmm. and many, including CIA agents who have long since retired, believe that there is information in some of the thousands of pages of classified documents that would put certain people within the CIA in the hot seat, (laughs) which apparently they were supposed to declassify it. Mm -hmm. And when Donald Trump was president, He was like, yeah, we're going to declassify it. Mm -hmm. And then the head of the CIA at the time or somebody involved with the CIA basically forced his hand to overturn that ruling. And then the same thing recently, like in the last couple of years, happened with Joe Biden. No way. So they still won't release incriminating documents that's got like names and like official like receipts of like this person bought the guns. No way. Oh, wow. It's like really crazy. I just got goosebumps. I don't want to like like go too far down that rabbit trail because I actually do want to do a full episode. Yeah, that's a different story, but that's like next level to tie Charles Rogers, son of these people brutally murdered, all the way to a presidential assassination. Right. That is crazy. Okay. So the people who believe this theory think that Charles may have murdered his parents after they discovered that he was involved in the assassination. In order to prevent any incriminating evidence from leaking to the public, he killed them and staged the scene in such a grotesque manner to shift the focus onto that and off of any government secrets. It's believed that the CIA may or may not have provided him with everything he would have needed to relocate after the murders. This theory does kind of crumble pretty fast, in my opinion, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. (laughs) But the same year as that book came out, multiple sources came forward with the identities of the men in the Three Tramps photo, and none of those people were Charles Rogers. Mm, And so in a lot of people's minds, if we don't have proof that he was there, then it is just a wild goose chase theory, you know? Yeah. But it is a crazy one. That is, uh, it's crazy to think about. There were members of the CIA who actually went to go try to find Charles Rogers at Shell because that theory was so like pervasive. Well, they tried to talk with former employers, is I think what the Houston police were doing. They were trying to establish a little bit of a profile on Charles. Yeah. I don't think they were going because of any CIA conversations, but it was noted later that they were never really able to actually get a hold of anybody who knew much about his involvement there. Interesting. That could be because he doesn't tend towards social things. You know, maybe people knew of him. Yeah. But it's still really interesting that they were still looking for him in relation to the JFK assassination. Right. Well, and what I understand. like really weird his connection to like david ferry and those guys were real yeah from what i could find and from what i understand he actually was connected to those people and so that is strange yeah that's very strange why would he be connected to those people right you know Uh, i mean other than the fact that he served in whatever the civil air patrol is their main connector yes and that makes sense because you can be attached to just anybody in the military if you're in the military right just like you were at a thing one time that they were at, like, there you go. There's a thing. Right. So I, I get that there's like a point of you, you don't want to overemphasize a certain uh, role that someone had that they just happened to work together for a moment. Sure. But even still like, yeah, that's really crazy that that's an actual demonstrable thing that you can say act 
like did happen. Yeah. Elements of, of that are true. Yeah. That's crazy. And so people connecting those dots. Yeah. Now, granted, that's how conspiracy theories spin completely out of control. That's true. Because a few things that are true get taken, you know, 10 miles down the road. Right. You and I always (laughs) talk about something that's true or like almost true is just about a million times more deadly and more dangerous Mm -hmm. where it's like a ship. If you're sailing five degrees in the wrong direction, Mm -hmm. suddenly you'll be, you'll reach a destination that's 500 miles away from where you intended to be. You know, it's the same idea. It is, but it is an interesting theory and a fun one to walk down. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's still not, it's still sad, but you know what I mean? It's, it is fun. There's something very mind capturing Mm -hmm. about it. Totally. Another theory is that Charles Rogers was murdered five years before his parents and that the killer had essentially moved into Charles's home and assumed his identity. (sighs) Supporters of this theory cite the fact that neither Fred or Edwina had had face-to-face interaction with their son for the five years leading up Mm -hmm. to their deaths and that they only communicated via written notes. Hmm. Taking that into account and the idea that Charles waited for his parents to fall asleep before leaving the house each night and returned before sunrise each morning before they would wake back up. Mm -hmm. Like there was a concerted effort to avoid them. So this would Hmm. also eliminate suspicions from any other family members or neighbors of the Rogers who never saw Charles coming or going. The idea here is that one of the parents discovered the intruder and when they confronted him that they were brutally killed and dismembered before the assailant disappeared into the night Mm. the main issue with this is the personal aspects of the crime yeah but many people believe that this is the case that this is what happened Hmm. and it would be easy for somebody to assume someone else's identity easier i suppose in 1965 for sure where if nobody knows who this guy is and he's working at the shell corporation yeah that's Hmm. oh that's just charles you know nobody's (laughs) really he didn't have enough connections yes that people would really notice a difference yeah no that makes sense and and a lot of people like that theory and believe that it is more plausible than the other ones that's See, I don't know if I'd call it more plausible. Uh, a lot of people argue it. People do crazy things. That's true. I mean, yeah. Charles had a lot of money. I mean, he he had a lot of credentials. I guess the question is, how would somebody find out that, oh, this guy's basically a recluse. I'm going to assume his identity. But Oh, Kevin. I, Sweet, naive <laughs> Kevin. Do we need to go down that road? I, I, I don't know. Maybe. I, I, you watch somebody, you establish their patterns, you follow them to the bank, mm, you yeah. you watch, you know, their, their day-to-day routine. Yeah. And I guess Charles wasn't really like completely a recluse. No, he, he wasn't. He went out at night. He, he had a girlfriend. Did stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like clearly he did have some. So, okay. Okay. I guess it's It starts to plausible, make sense. But it, it almost seems like. It's too easy to like blame it on somebody else. Right. You know, like that's, that's where my mind goes is I'm like, maybe people like that story better because it makes the killer even less personal. Yeah. Even if like us, you don't have any connection to Charles Rogers. Right. um, And it can be deemed pretty impersonal and Mm -hmm. you can be disassociated for some people to disassociate even further by saying it's just some mysterious man that disappeared into the night. I'm like, if that makes you feel better, 
mm-hmm. guess. But honestly, that makes me feel worse. Right. <laughs> Personally, I'm like, that's a worse ending to that story. Cause right. You know, well, and I didn't write this down, but some people have also wondered aloud if maybe Fred owed money to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And if all three of them actually were victims. Yeah. And, yeah. um, they were killed elsewhere and then brought back to their home. Mm-hmm. And then the killer, you know, tried to frame Charles by throwing the weapons into his room. And that led the trail of blood to his room and the blood in the bathroom could be as simple as somebody washing off their hands. Yeah. So a lot of people have talked about that one as well. Yeah. See that that's where my mind went first. Yeah. As you're telling the story, I'm like, well, maybe he was a victim too. And just, mm-hmm. he wasn't shoved into the ice box because it sounds like it was pretty full. Yeah. Um, Obviously, in most of these kinds of cases, you still find at least some evidence of of that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you unless have to. they were killed elsewhere, right? Killed elsewhere, um, even you know, had their body disposed of in a way that's a little bit more permanent mm-hmm. than or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not permanent, but a little bit more uh, disintegrated fashion. Mm. Like, it's just, you're not going to find anything about this because of the way. And we've heard of stories uh, in the past that mm-hmm. ended kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So it's not out of the question. Um, but once again, it's hard to even want to like own that one as like the theory that you think is most likely. Right. Because there's no evidence for it at all. Right. You're just like making an assumption and going along with it. Right. But I guess these kind of are all like that. So. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> yeah. They really, really are. At the end of the day, with no official final ruling on the case, we only have theories. And in my opinion, that's one of the most tragic elements of this story. Mm. Not only will justice never be served in this case, but in our quest for answers, the most logical conclusions come from a lot of truly sad potential truths. If the theory about Charles planning the murders of his parents after years of financial and physical abuse is true, what a tragedy. Yeah. If it's not true, what a tragedy. The verifiable victims in this story have long since been the subject of discussions surrounding gross and serious abuse allegations mm-hmm. that nobody actually involved can fully verify. And again, what a tragedy. Right. If someone murdered Charles Rogers, assumed his identity, and then murdered his elderly parents, what a tragedy. Right. I know the temptation with stories like this is to follow the trail down to even the smallest of possibilities. And I do understand that. Yeah. But I really just want to, just a little PSA moment. I really think we would need to be careful with how we talk about stories like this, where due process isn't even part of the picture. Mm. For decades, people have believed that Fred and Edwina were abusers, that Charles committed some of the most gruesome murders in recent history. And honestly, since we don't know that for sure, that makes me really sad. Yeah. I applaud the quest for answers and those who have dedicated countless hours to cracking the code on cold cases such as this one. And I want to acknowledge that. And for the most part, the theories I mentioned weren't pulled totally out of a hat and were based on some level of legitimate evidence, Mm -hmm. such as the firsthand accounts and public records. But yeah, that is the story of the Icebox murders. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. It is always a little bit dissatisfying when it's a story that has no actual Mm -hmm. uh, end and you're like, and that's it. Right. Theories abound. Right. But it also, on the same, on the opposite hand of that, it is uh, very satisfying to be like, okay, at least there's like a bunch of theories. A bunch of working theories. <laughs> yeah. Because we, we've had a few stories where it's like, 
And Nobody that's has it. any clue. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. Like, we'll never know. And it's like, with this one, we may never know, but it sounds like there's been enough people who have done enough digging that we can at least feel pretty confident in some of, like, one of these theories. Yeah. And it's up to the person's opinion to right. determine which one, which theory they kind of gravitate towards the most. Right. But it's still something that, like, you can feel pretty confident if you've been convinced that, like, this is the theory that works for you. Then, right. Then, you know, you can land there because we just we've had other stories that we you can't do that yeah i think about um what was the one about the woman in boston uh in the boston area uh on the island the lady of the dunes they identified her right that's what i was about to say like that one at first like it didn't seem like there was any chance of that ever happening that's true and then one day (laughs) right we're on facebook and it's like oh my gosh what like yeah. That's crazy. That is know? true. That is true. The the likelihood of ever finding answers is pretty low, but it's not impossible. Right. Right. Yeah. And I didn't want to be annoying and make like a grandstand moment, but I just had this like as I was trying to wrap it up, I had this like awful churning in my stomach mm-hmm. about this story because it is one that's been very widely speculated about for a long time. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, okay, let's make make sure that we're remaining human and acknowledging what we do know yeah. is really tragic. And like not there, there's a level of allowing yourself to become too entertained mm. with stories like this that I sure. think is yeah. is unwise. And yeah. uh, it can lean into uh, like a danger of of lacking compassion if you're not careful. Yeah. And so I didn't want to be annoying about that, but I was like, I do feel like I need to say that in this yeah, episode. Yeah, that's helpful. That's I hope good. nobody takes offense to that. I just, yeah, I was no. feeling it. It's, it's hard because especially for this podcast, we like to put a lot of honor onto victims mm-hmm. and it sounds like there's really no way to do that in this story right. because there's just so little to verify right. at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling and unsavory story this week. Uh, I'm not even going to try to rank it. I feel like I've been unable to rank most of our stories you for the just last bypass like 30. The ranking. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'll just keep on moving. So if you have an opinion on that, please feel free to share your thoughts in the comments on any of our social media platforms. Speaking of which, you can find us on social media on TikTok and Instagram at this one is a doozy. And on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. If you haven't already, please make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform and that you leave a glowing five-star review. Those reviews help other people to find this podcast, to listen to other podcasts like it. And lastly, if you want to connect with us even more directly, you can via Patreon. My love, why don't you share a little bit about Patreon? Yeah, so you can follow the link in our Instagram bio or our Facebook about section, or you can go to patreon.com slash doozypod. And for $5 a month, you can support our show. Followers on Patreon get access to all of our content ad-free, as well as polls each month where we decide on which organizations that we want to support financially. Mm -hmm. And you will also get two bonus episodes every month that are exclusive to Patreon. That's right. Yes. We love our patrons. Those are such good episodes. I know I say it every every single week, but like, those are such good episodes. So you're missing out if you are not part of that. And I'm not just saying that because I want you to be a patron. I'm saying that because I want you to enjoy all of the fruits of Haley's labor because <laughs> it is, they're just so good. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Bye.